Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You guys are getting a real glimpse at Retro Scott today because I broke my glasses last night. And so my baby, either oh, I no. or my baby broke my glasses. It's a little unclear. So I am well, blaming it on the baby. Scott, Scott Circa 2012. This pair of glasses got me through... Over a year in Iraq and survived. The only pair of glasses I've had that has lasted almost what, like a decade now, just about. It's completely insane. Um, but it's a real retro look. I don't know. Were those how fashionable I feel about it. a decade ago? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But they were there. They were available. They're sturdy, you know, kind of what we were, I was going for at the time. And it certainly held up. It's kind of amazing. My prescription is still like, you know, 60% of the way there. You guys are a little fuzzier than usual. Can't tell that the internet connection or not, but something, yeah. something's going on. That can only be a good thing. But I'm curious, who who made the glasses, Scott? Do you want to shill for for Warby Parker or whoever your glasses manufacturer? It is, is? in fact Warby Parker. They're, They're called the good. Roosevelts, named after our you know president with the highest Constitution score. They have lived up to the name and proven truly durable. But Teddy wore glasses, not Franklin. Franklin, I think Franklin wore a monocle. Maybe that's just the characters of him. I don't know. I may be getting confused with a Monopoly man, but I don't think he had perfect eyesight. I think we could say that safely. Wait, which of the Roosevelt presidents got the highest constitution score? I think TR. What is a constitution score? Constitution scores. It's like, uh, it's like you know, one of your uh, main six attributes in Dungeons and Dragons. It's like the most important one. How many constitutions you do? Yeah, exactly. I think it's like 1 to 18 or 1 to 20, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. It's a high oh, one. Oh, Constitution. I'm sorry. Constitution. I, I, I was thinking like United States Constitution. I was so confused. What is this, a legal podcast? No, I mean physical constitution. So, yeah. so, so here's the question. Who is nerdier? Scott, because he just made a D&D reference, or me, because I immediately went to the U.S. Constitution when Scott said Constitution? I think we're all terrible. Okay. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Catching Fire. Because things are heating up around here this week in the world and here in the virtual podcast studio, where I am with my co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And our very special guest, uh, research assistant to the one and only Alex Vindman, an expert in his own right and all manner of things, Russian and Eastern European. That's probably even geographically limiting it too much. And wonderful lawfare associate, Dominic Bastillo. Dominic, thank you so much for joining us here today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. We uh, have not had the opportunity to have you on a lawfare, this lawfare podcast yet, but I think we've had you on a couple others uh, in the past, right? Maybe roped you into Lawfare Live or two. Yeah, so Lawfare Live and then a podcast for a book review. Okay, there you go. Well, this is, this is as you may know, if you listen, if you haven't listened, you wouldn't be the first guest who has to listen, uh, where we like to channel all of our chaotic energy. On that alignment plot chart, this is the chaotic corner of it. So we're excited to have you here as we kind of hash through a couple of the big stories that are coming in the National Security News this week. And it is a big week because this is the Bloody Valentine edition. It's a week where we are both celebrating love, uh, but also facing some pretty dangerous situations that may or may not be coming to a head in the next few days uh, around the world, most notably around Ukraine. Which brings us to our first topic, 
giving chicken Kiev new meaning. <laughs> the showdown over Ukraine may be headed to a dangerous climax this week, and it's not clear who, if anyone, is going to blink. What do we make of the Biden administration's strategy thus far, which has ruled out military involvement in favor of economic sanctions and has focused on exposing Russian misinformation? Has the Biden administration played this right? Is it too soon to tell, or should they have taken a different tack? Topic two, legitimate political discord. The Republican National Committee's sanction of Representatives Cheney and Kinzinger for their participation in the January 6th committee has triggered a rare backlash among many Republicans, leading Chairperson Ronna McDaniel scrambling to explain the RNC's assertion that the events of January 6th were legitimate political discourse. Is this a sign of the strength of Trumpism's hold on the Republican Party, its limits, or both? And topic three, I've got 230 problems and this fixes one. The Senate Judiciary Committee recently advanced the revived Earn It Act, a proposal that would limit Section 230 liability protections for online social media platforms in order to combat child sexual abuse material. But does the act risk infringing on legitimate speech too much, as many advocates maintain? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. First, though, Scott, I want to recognize that those are three really solid puns. It's hard. I mean, it's Thank hard you. to do three every week. And I just I want to shout out that's it's a it's, it's a thankless job, especially given the quinta eye rolls that um, only only we can see the audience cannot. But I, that, I thought it was great. Fuel me. <laughs> I just want to point out that chicken Kiev, the dish is now spelled differently um, in the Roman alphabet than Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, which is really? now spelled K-Y-I-V as opposed to the dish, which is K-I-E. Oh, how interesting. Well, fortunately, I'm a vegetarian, so I have an easy out on this one. <laughs> you have, there's no reason for you to know. Is chicken no. Kiev a, Rus a Russian dish? Is that the theory? I think it's just a, a dish. And so uh, when the romanization was changed, people felt less strongly about changing the name of the dish. Maybe they just didn't want to reprint their menus. I don't know. Interesting. Listeners, please add us with your research into the etymology of chicken Kiev. Um, but related... Lee, uh, and I'm sure as many of our listeners are well aware, uh, the crisis on the uh, Russian-Ukrainian border is uh, increasing. It has escalated uh, in the last uh, few weeks. Um, there are now approximately 130,000 Russian troops uh, at the border, uh, most in Russia, some in Belarus, where the Russian and Belarusian forces are participating in a what they call a joint military exercise. For a number of reasons, the U.S. is increasingly concerned that a Russian strike into Ukraine could happen any day now. Uh, part of this is because we're nearing the end of the Olympics, and there's some thinking that Putin might want to wait until the Olympics has ended so as not to annoy Xi Jinping, who is increasingly his most important ally, and not to take away from the, the Winter Olympics in China. Uh, in addition, um, as we get further into the spring and the roads become muddy, that creates logistical challenges uh, for the Russian forces. So if the Russians are going to invade, they're going to do so any day now. Now, as Scott mentioned, the United States has ruled out military involvement and instead has chosen to really focus its energies on putting out information on uh, various uh, pretextual reasons uh, that the Russians may choose to invade Ukraine. So before we get into that, though, I do want to ask about the kind of general situation, um, especially given um, that as we're recording, there are reports that at least some Russian troops are actually returning to their bases. So... Scott and Dominic, you're kind of our foreign policy experts, so I want to hear from you first, and I'll start with Scott. Um, you know, especially given this latest news, where would you put the probability that this is still headed toward a uh, military confrontation? 
you know, I, I will hand it over to Dominic to, to make any prognostication on that because I think he's following the situation much more closely than, than I am. What, what I would say is that, you know, we have no way of knowing at this point, uh, and it should be worth noting, we're recording kind of Tuesday midday, uh, Washington, D.C. time. So things very well might change before this gets released tomorrow morning. I don't think we really have a clear idea about what the likelihood of anything is because it all comes down to a person who's cultivated a very conscious reputation as a true black box of decision-making, Vladimir Putin, who capitalizes upon having a reputation of being a little bit of a risk taker, some of which is self-attributed in his own uh, biographical writings that kind of develops this idea that he has a high tolerance for risk and fits into it strategically, makes strategic choices that takes advantage of uh, the fact that he's willing to buck international norms and standards of behavior in ways that a lot of leaders aren't. So we're seeing signs that Russia may be open to new talk, security talks, maybe pulling some troops back from the border, although how serious that is, is, is has not even been conceded yet by NATO or the United States, as far as I'm aware, NATO partners. That said, like, I, you know, even if they are true, that is happening. I wouldn't count that this crisis is over. Putin has set himself up to make a very effective bluff. He spent a lot of resources positioning Russian troops to do this. I think there are good reasons. And as I've said on this podcast before, very good reasons why I, I, I think it would not be worth it for him to go through with it uh, at a large scale, at least occupation of all of Ukraine. That are reasons why he seems less likely to do it if he's a strictly rational actor, but he's operating on a different calculus. He may have a longer game. We don't know what other fronts he's going to try and pull into a potential conflict to gain leverage on. Um, so I think it's too early for anyone to really say we know how this is going to play out yet. Dominic, how do you feel about that? Do you, do you agree or do you think you, we see some clearer signs here? I echo the sentiment that it's really not clear where this is heading right now. So the major reports of the day to start off was that the MOD in Russia had released this official statement and said that we're sending some of our troops, they've completed their exercises, we're sending them back to their permanent bases. Uh, but until that's actually verified by officials in the West, in the intelligence apparatus, etc., there's not really any reason to believe that that rhetoric is anything more than just something that you have to take at face value and you can't really read into it. I've actually seen reports from unnamed sources uh, online from reporters saying that officials are seeing the exact opposite, that this is just redeployment of forces and that on balance, there's still an increase in the force posture along Ukraine's border. Uh, and even just within the last hour of recording this uh, podcast, there were reports of a DDoS attack on uh, the two biggest state-owned banks in Ukraine. So that's uh, Oshad Bank and Privat Bank, and then a DDoS attack on the Ministry of Defense as well. Uh, so their site's down. People are not able to access uh, their ATMs or it's spotty access, uh, and there's issues with bank cards and so on and so forth. And that's kind of really the first signs of what we would expect if an attack were to move forward. Uh, cyber attacks, those haven't yet touched critical infrastructure. So maybe a bigger warning sign for this is really about to happen would be cyber attacks on telecoms or utilities. But again, just on balance between the rhetoric that we're seeing from Russia saying, okay, there are some things we're open to negotiating on, whether that be a return to INF, uh, the Inter uh, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, or negotiating kind of on the contours of some of what uh, NATO and the U.S. have shown a willingness to negotiate. I would I would say it's too early to tell definitively where this is going. I know that that's a very <laughs> dissatisfying answer, but that unfortunately is just kind of where we're at right now. I am curious, Dominic, what would be the strategic advantage or the strategic rationale 
in your opinion, of Russia signaling even a small willingness to de-escalate, which I think is how many observers in the West have perceived this Ministry of Defense announcement of troop withdrawal. Presumably, when the Russians did that, they understood how that would be perceived. And was there any? Re- I mean, is there any reason for them to do so if they were not sincere? I mean, might it just be just to keep everyone on on their toes? This is a, a honest question. I don't really have any strong intuitions. I'm just curious your thoughts about it. So there are a couple of things. It could be that this is an overture in the hopes that maybe they can extract some additional concessions. Uh, Another part of it could be that they've fully failed at preserving a strategic level of surprise for this operation. People are aware that this is something that could happen in the near future. But on the operational and tactical levels, that's still an open question. And so these kinds of announcements and the kinds of social media videos that you see floating around on troop movements and stuff, that could all be part of a broader operation or mask where this attack is going to be coming from and the exact timing of the attack as well. Uh, So those are things to take into consideration. Now, as for the perceived benefits, there is perhaps a logic to Putin wishing to climb down from the escalation ladder at some point, um, simply because they've already forced themselves to the front of the international agenda. They've put themselves at the top of U.S. national security priorities and kind of the broader issues that we're considering right now. They've extracted some concessions with regards to a recognition of maybe a return to some of the arms control stuff. Now, they haven't expressed that that meets any of their demands, but maybe, maybe this could signal something better on the horizon than just all out war. Again, though, just too early to tell. Yeah, I I note that this morning, uh, Eastern time, at least Margarita Simonian, who's kind of the the face of RT, made a comment saying, uh, we showed everyone what we wanted previously. They didn't even want to talk to us about security. But now there is a line of people wanting to admire the views of Moscow in February, Um, which I assume is referencing the long parade of world leaders who have come to sit and talk with Putin at either end of what is really an extremely long table um, in what I assume is a is a COVID precaution. Um, so that, I mean, Dominic, you can tell me if I'm a wrong. The table is a hell of a lot longer than six feet. I'm not it's sure a really long table. It's I a mean, really it, long it table. looks like it's been photoshopped. There are two tables. One, they had one table, and then they found another table that's even longer for his meetings with his own foreign minister for some reason. You know, the, the longer this goes on, the longer the table will get. Yeah, exactly. So so that seems potentially hopeful. I mean, I'll, I'll obviously eat my words if, if this goes wrong. I think two, two other points. One is it's worth underlining how incredibly horrific a Russian invasion of Ukraine would be. Um, I mean, this is not something we've we've been joking around, but I know none of us are, are thinking lightly about this. Um, some of the stories I've heard from people preparing in Ukraine are just really make your blood run cold in terms of what people are thinking might happen um, and what they're preparing to do to protect themselves or leave the country. And that leads into my second point, which I'm, I'm curious what you all think about this, especially you, Dominic. There's been a weird dissonance between 
what you hear, at least in the English language media from Kiev and what you hear in D.C. in terms of the likelihood of an invasion coming to pass from Kiev, obviously President Zelensky has been really kind of playing stuff down, I assume, because the sort of the flight of people and capital from Ukraine is actually really harmful to the country if an invasion doesn't occur. But, you know, plenty of other Ukrainian officials and high profile figures have been saying, you know, we don't think that this is as likely as the West seems it seems to think it will be. In D.C., at least from where I'm sitting, the degree of alarm uh, is extremely pointed and often, honestly, to a point kind of weirdly like slavering at the bit a little bit for for this to happen. You like you can feel people kind of get excited about the possibility, which I find pretty off-putting because of the the aforementioned human cost. But so Dominic, I'm curious what you think about that and if you have any sense of what is leading to that split in presentation in Washington and Kiev. Is it really a difference in perception? Is it just a strategic distinction? I think some of it is a difference in perception just because of what's thought of as the unthinkable, uh, especially for people on the ground, both within Ukraine and Russia. And just kind of to underscore, even if these are not two united, one people, as Vladimir Putin may imagine, there are significant ties between both countries just on the local level. You have families that are split across the borders. You have people that regularly interact with one another in both countries um, outside of kind of broader disputes between the two governments and militaries, obviously. Uh, and there's not really broad ranging support domestically within Russia for this. I mean, just recently in the Washington Post, there was this article from a number of experts who do public opinion research in Russia. And they said based off of their most recent surveys in December, it's just 8% that think Russia should send military forces to fight against Ukraine's government and only 9% that thinks Russia should be offering any kind of material aid to separatists. So in that kind of environment, um, at least on the Russian side, but then to a lesser degree on the Ukrainian side, there's just this idea that, you know, are they really, is this really going to move forward? Do they really want to have a conflict that's going to result in tens of thousands of casualties for this ostensibly, according to Putin, united people for an operation that's going to include, that would include air, sea, and land power, the likes of which we haven't seen in mainland Europe since World War II. Like, that's a really hard thing to kind of square with the existing logic there. And then there's also this added element where, uh, as you pointed out, they want to reduce panic. I mean, you've already seen that in a way, Russia leveling this threat of an invasion has already created a situation where there's de facto sanctions that have been imposed on Ukraine. So insurance companies haven't been willing to put forward um, money for airline flights into Ukraine anymore. Uh, the Ukrainian government has had to step in and allocate additional funds for that, which has put a real strain on their budget. Uh, you're seeing additional costs just in terms of capital flight, as you already pointed out. And then it's just it's one of those things where long term that that those will have building costs, snowballing costs for the Ukrainian government. And that's something that they want to avoid if Russia doesn't move forward with this. Well, I think that really gets at what I see as being the weird strategic calculus here, which I actually think explains a little bit about what Russia is doing here. But I'm going to get a caveat by saying I'm not a Russia guy. I'm not. I follow this stuff in the because in the news, I, I very well may be wrong and, and totally accept uh, correction. But it just seems like 
any sort of military operation here, for the reasons you just laid out, Dominic, is going to be really expensive for Putin to pursue. And remember, here we're talking about not just in, the, in a different a different version of what the, the Russians could pursue. Maybe they occupy Donbass, right? And then it becomes like a redo of Crimea or South Ossetia, where you have like a relatively friendly population, somewhat manageable, but you still end up with what both South Ossetia and Crimea have been, which is a, you know, economic burden on Russia because they're subject to international economic sanctions, a diplomatic point of friction. Um, but occupying all of Ukraine, kicking out a new regime, you know, you're dealing with a, a major extended complicated operation against a heavily armed, fairly politically unified population that's going to make it a really uncomfortable occupation. And I think it's going to be harder to maintain a puppet regime. And we saw what happened to the last puppet regimes that Russians have, have had, right? So I suspect the biggest return on investment for Putin at this point is just to keep the pressure up as high as he can by positioning himself to potentially pursue invasion, but not necessarily taking that step, you know, being able to have the threat and make it credible and seem as credible as possible. And that puts the pressure on people in Western Europe and the United States to say, okay, maybe they need to start listening to some of these different strategic positions Russia wants, which we saw it give a very like, you know, ambitious initial offering in terms of like, you know, banning US troops in different NATO countries, things like that. That's not going to happen. But, you know, you may see different types of realignment and, and discussion about some of these security concerns. But to do that, it's worth noting, like, that's really expensive to stay in that position of constant pressure. So Putin's got to find ways to wind down pressure at different points to save his own costs uh, and then can ramp it back up later and has more slack in the line that he can pull tight when he wants to put the pressure up on Western Europe uh, and NATO, not just Western Europe, the rest of Europe. I'll note, though, I think this calculus is part of the reason why actually the Biden administration has been very savvy to go back to kind of our original prompt and how they've approached this, right? They took military conflict right off the table from the, from more or less from the outset. Um, I think that gave people a lot of heartache, but I actually think it made a lot of sense. And it wasn't a foregone conclusion. I think some people say, oh, yeah, we were never going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. But that doesn't mean that Biden had to necessarily take it off the table. Think of Taiwan, right? There's good reasons to doubt whether the United States would go to war with Taiwan, but instead we still have a very clear policy of uh, strategic ambiguities where we leave out the possibility that we might as a deterrent. Instead, Biden said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to draw the line. If you're going to invade, you can do it, and we're not going to militarily oppose you. We will make it hard and expensive and painful for you. But in exchange for that, he was able to get Europeans and, frankly, Americans, including both the more uh, you know progressive and libertarian wings of the Republican Democratic Party, to some extent, not all of them, but, but most of them that are more restraint-oriented, to say, you know, we're willing to hold the line against Putin on these other fronts. You know, I think that the not letting Ukraine into NATO was the point that was the most kind of dissent, but no one was seriously pushing for a major restructuring of European security commitments by the United States, which is what Putin was asking for. And I think that is going to be the policy we see moving forward. So the strategy now is going to be how much can Biden keep the unified front in pushing back with Putin? And then it becomes a much more detailed negotiation. Um, if you start seeing defectors, if you start seeing some people maybe get brought over into, into Russia's camp, see other, not in their camp, but see other incentives kind of push them in different directions to split from the policy position, that's going to be a challenge. But it's a long-term game. I think we're going to see decision we're in now, something really similar to that sustained, frankly, for the next several years is my expectation. Let's then switch from thinking about Russia's actions here to thinking about the United States' actions. So Scott, you know, your argument, if I understand it correctly, right, is that although the United States is taken, has taken military engagement off the table, it has replaced it with something that at least it can more credibly threaten, right? I'll use this as, a, as an opportunity to talk about a particular U.S. tactic that's been in the news, which is the, the use of kind of U.S. intelligence to highlight potential Russian disinformation. Um, so, you know, U.S. intelligence has been making public um, that it knows about various 
pretexts that uh, Putin is considering, um, various false flag operations that he wants to use or, or might consider using um, as, as a way to justify a move into the Ukraine. Now, I, I think as a tactic that has proven quite clever um, and is presumably successful on some margin. But I, I do wonder, I mean, how effective should we think or should we expect this particular tactic of the U.S. to be? In other words, is highlighting the various pretexts upon which Putin might choose to invade Ukraine really the thing that is going to meaningfully deter Putin from doing so? And I'm curious, Dominic, what what, what your thoughts on this are. I don't know if it's necessarily meant as a deterrent so much as just undermining this kind of gray zone confusion that one would expect if they were to launch a false flag operation or try to establish a pretext. So if you remember in like 2014, when initially Russia launched their first invasion of Ukraine and annexed uh, Crimea and then put supported proxy forces in eastern Ukraine and then also had their own intelligence forces and intervened there directly once the Ukrainian military was threatening to defeat their proxy forces. Uh, There was a lot of confusion around what was or wasn't happening because of just this fire hose of disinformation coming from Russia. So I think now the strategy is if they have information on hand to potentially get out in front of that and kind of cut those narratives off at the legs before they can kind of spread to foreign media, uh, that's the approach that they've decided to take. And there is some merit to that because initially in 2014, this this disinformation spread to foreign headlines and there were times at which uh, foreign journalists were I, not intentionally contributing to confusion around the conflict, but there was an unintentionally drawing on some of the narratives that Russia was putting out. The one thing I would add to that, though, because I agree with that, is that we have to bear in mind, this is not cost-free. The more information of this sort of detail that the Biden administration and allies put out there, the more information they're revealing about the sources and methods they have to be engaging in espionage against Russia and its internal decision making and planning, right? Now, they're not like giving away who their source is, but you get enough data points, you enable Russia to be able to track it down. The more detailed data point, the better. Um, That's why I suspect we're not going to see the strategy sustained. I think that's because I think it reflects the fact that the Biden administration genuinely thinks we're on the verge of a possible crisis here. Once we see things ease a little bit, uh, if they do, I suspect the Biden administration is going to roll back on that tactic and save it for, again, those scenarios where Russia puts the pressure on and things heat up. It's also true that, you know, the the cost is not only within the U.S. intelligence community, it's also for Ukraine. Joshua Yaffa of The New Yorker has a really interesting piece out today of sort of the view from Kiev Um where he notes that, you know, the more information that DC and other intelligence agencies, including I think some from London, have put out about Russian preparations, the more anxiety there is just among normal people in Ukraine about what to expect. And that psychological burden is is real and shouldn't be underestimated. Well, from a potential war in one place to a war within the Republican Party. That was bad. Um, <laughs> Scott just gave me a thumbs up. That was everyone. great. I'm very enthusiastic. About I feel that, like it, it could have been segue. better. It could have been better. Our next topic has to do with what else? January 6th. Um, as some of you may have seen, the Republican National Committee recently caused a bit of a stir by censuring uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, the two Republican representatives sitting on the January 6th committee. 
And particularly saying that uh, Cheney and Kensinger were engaged in uh, political persecution of Americans who were engaged in January 6th on, and I quote, legitimate political discourse. That caused a bit of a stir. Did it mean that the RNC was endorsing what happened on January 6th as legitimate political discourse? I would note that the uh, original description was a bit vague, perhaps intentionally so, to allow a little wiggle room. But nevertheless, the RNC seemed shocked, shocked that anyone could possibly be upset by this. They tried to walk it back, I think somewhat unsuccessfully. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell gave a speech on the Senate floor saying that January 6th was not legitimate political discourse. There are a lot of different angles here. But the thing that this really made me think about is just how unsustainable the Republican Party's position seems to be right now. You know, as with all of the instances in which people said, you know, love Trump, can't get enough of his policies, hate the tweets. This seems like an instance where they're really trying to sort of ride the tiger of the political energy around people supporting January 6th without outright endorsing it. And this instance is a a moment when it becomes clear just how difficult it is to really straddle that line to to mix a metaphor. Um, so Alan, I'm I'm curious for your thoughts as a as a fellow J6 watcher. What do you make of this little fracas? So for, first, I I think I disagree with you a little bit, Quinta, on the question of whether or not this shows that the current Republican Party is unsustainable. I mean, I, I think as long as it is able to win elections it is kind of by definition sustainable because these intra-party fights can be papered over with electoral victories. And, you know, as messed up as the Republican Party is right now, the Democratic Party is not doing particularly well. Every indication is that the Democrats are going to lose pretty badly um, in this year's midterm elections. Voters, in particular, the quote-unquote swing voters um, that are so important for elections are very much focused on things like the economy, which they perceive most negatively due to rising inflation. The Democrats obviously have their own issues internally and their own messaging problems. So I'm not convinced that this state of affairs can't last for a long time, right? Just as in American history, parties have often had these deep internal disagreements for for a long time. Now, that being said, the way I understand this is as another example of how in the long run, the Republican parties need to cater to the ego of one very fragile person is in some conflict with its long-term electoral viability. Uh, now, how long that will take is, is not entirely clear, um, but it does strike me that you know this RNC statement is very obviously to assuage Trump's ego and to uh, hope that Trump can be an ally in the midterm elections rather than a spoiler. Right, as he was, for example, in the Georgia Senate special elections that arguably cost the Republicans those two Senate seats. So the question then becomes, is the benefit to Republicans of having Trump on their side, does that outweigh the costs of re-injecting January 6th, which most Americans don't like, into the public conversation? I actually suspect that that in the long term, this may help Republicans by energizing their base more than it turns off um, the people who already don't like the Republicans. Obviously, that's just a prediction and I, I have no idea. Now, the fact that this may be good for Republicans certainly doesn't mean that it's good for American democracy. Um, but I, I'm I'm not that convinced that 
at the end of the day, this is as big of a mistake politically as I think the consensus seems to be suggesting it is. Yeah, to clarify before we hear from Scott and Dominic, I definitely didn't mean unsustainable in the sense that it will reap the whirlwind electorally. And I, I worry that you're very right there, but more unsustainable in the, in the sense that the current composition of the Republican Party, which is sort of this weird Frankenstein of business and cultural conservatives and people who are genuinely pro-Trump, many of whom believe that the election was indeed stolen and that January 6th was justified, that that sort of amalgamation is not stable and is going to change over time to be all of one or all of the other. Yeah. Uh, you know, my view in this is that I think, Alan, you've hit on, you know, some a little bit of the strategic logic behind this about the balance between mobilizing your base versus outreach to swing voters or new voters, right? Like that's a, a balance here. Again, though, I'm not sure this isn't a sign that the Trump or your faction of the Republican Party are getting overextended, right? Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, who's a very savvy political actor, if nothing else, seems to think that doing what the RNC has done pushes past the advantage for electoral advantage, at least for Senate Republicans, who he seems to care about. I suspect he cares about all Republicans. And he seems to feel the need to push back against that. Maybe it's about his personal ethics or something inside of that. It's always a possibility. I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I think he's got electoral calculus. He thinks this probably goes too far. As do a lot of other Senate Republicans, as do another a number of other Republicans that come out and said, like, this is just a bridge too far. And we need to stop hedge the extent to which we get on board with this January 6th nonsense for a variety of reasons. Maybe because while it brings a certain energy of a certain people, those people bring with them a lot of liabilities in the party, um, a lot of unpredictability, a lot of things, policy agenda, policy items. So these people may not like and may not think help the Republican Party. And so I think actually the the fact that you said the RNC take this step, this misstep, I would argue, and then see people openly responding to it. I mean, McConnell on the Senate floor, that's like a big move in this weird world that these people live in. That shows like that there's actually some fight back in the non-Trumpy parts of the Republican Party, um, probably more fight than there was, frankly, like, you know, most of the last four or five years. Uh, I, I take that as a sign of hope, but like a small H hope, right? Like a, it's a hope that uh, the Republican Party will will stay committed to maybe at least some element of it might stay committed and might have the opportunity to take leadership roles in the party again, stay committed to fundamental democratic process norms. But this actually also like leads to this conversation we've had before about what the Democrat strategy should be in all of this, right? Like a lot of Democrats and Democrats in Congress, I think, since the last election have taken a tack where they have tried to you bring January 6th into a narrative that supports a fairly ambitious policy agenda of a lot of democratic reforms, a lot of broader uh, reforms about things like access to voting and uh, redistricting issues and things like that. A lot of which I see very natural ties. That's I think a lot of Democrats do uh, between those issues and what we've seen happening in the last few years. But Republicans don't see those ties. Those institutional Republicans willing to speak out against the RNC in this case don't see those ties. They don't support those issues. I don't think it's wrong for the Democrats to pursue that in the first year, as we've talked about before. Like, I think it makes sense for Democrats to kind of go for their more ambitious, more partisan, you know, and not in a derogatory way, uh, agenda items early on when they've kind of like got the furthest distance to the next election. But it does hint that maybe now a strategy needs to be really try and put some more daylight between the institutionalist Republicans and the Trumpy Republicans. And you do that by finding very low hanging fruit that you can get the institutional Republicans on board with. Electoral Count Act reform, I think, is the latest example where you really seem to have genuine buy-in from a number of these Republicans. I kind of suspect that's the direction we're going to go in. I think the next year is going to be a lot of this low-hanging fruit, but you're actually going to see some space for bipartisan action against 
certain fundamental changes. I hope the Democrats, Democratic leadership takes advantage of. And I think they are, they seem to be so far, which is kind of interesting. And then the question becomes, well, we get to the next election. How do we approach this, right? Like, do you really try and fight the wedge on the non-democratic part, which may let you bring more moderates in, uh, you know, the kind of like Alyssa Slotkins and Abigail Spanbergers who are like facing rough reelections now on the democratic side? Or do you stick to the narrative that, ties all this to a much broader, fairly progressive agenda. Um, I suspect they're going to see more of a move to the former. That's going to put a lot of people on the left of the Democratic Party, you know, in pretty uh, angry mood. But, you know, I, I, again, it's if, if it's this battle for swing voters, like the more you see the Republican core going so far as to even alienate their own institutionalists, that gives a lot more space in the middle that Democrats can can move towards. And, and I suspect they're going to feel the inclination to do that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I actually have a question for, for Dominic here. I was just on a, a Brookings panel about January 6th, and one of the really interesting things that was discussed um, was something Fiona Hill brought up, essentially arguing that, you know, the the events of January 6th and the American failure to come to terms with it is really damaging to the United States standing abroad and its ability to kind of serve as a model of what democracy can look like. It's sort of its moral standing. I'm curious what you think of that and if you see any influence of sort of January 6th and the fallout in U.S. policy. I mean, in Anywhere, but particularly in the, the areas of the world you study, or is that overstated? I would say it depends. Uh, again, I know that's kind of a non-answer, but uh, at least within Eastern Europe, for the people that I know, if you track developments in the United States, then this is definitely something you look at and go look at all of the domestic turmoil and chaos. They don't have their house in order like how can they be preaching to the rest of the world about democracy and holding a democracy summit when they can't even deal with the issues that they have on their own doorstep? Uh, but then on the other side of it, it's also something that's so far removed that you know there's enough issues at home right now with the pandemic and with impending potential war uh, in Ukraine that that's not something that, at least in, in my circle of people that I know, uh, is something that's a prominent topic of conversation. Uh, and that's true on the domestic level as well, uh, honestly. Uh, at least for me and the folks that I know back home in California, 
uh, January 6th stands out as something that was appalling, stands out as something that you know people remember, but it's not something that people are closely tracking with all of the stuff that's going on in Congress. It's more of just a, this is dragged out for so long, where's the accountability? Okay, we're not going to get it. Okay, well, midterms, okay, that's the reality. And And people are more focused on some of the more prevalent issues at hand, where their wallets are, how the economy's doing, things like that. Unfortunately, that's that's just at least for me the reality. For, for me, the question is about something that Scott said about what the Democrats can do to build distance between the institutionalists in the Republican Party and the Trumpists in the Republican Party. And this does seem to me to be the kind of interesting question. If you're um, a Democratic leader who's thinking not just in terms of the next six months or the next election or your particular policy priority, but in terms of the long run health of American democracy, because unless there is a strong center-right party in America that abides by democratic norms and wins elections with some regularity, we will not have a stable democratic system. And so it is in the long-term democratic interest. Sorry, I'm now using democratic in two different ways, right? It it is in the long-term interests of the democratic party to have a functioning democracy, which is to say to have a healthy Republican party. And, And the question is, is there anything the Democrats can do to accomplish that, right? You know, is it a matter, as Scott pointed out, of stringing together some small wins to show that bipartisanship, which Americans still say they overwhelmingly like, is still possible? Is it a matter of providing some sort of cover for Republicans like uh, Liz Cheney, Kinziger in the House, or you know, Mitt Romney in the Senate? Is there anything the Democrats can can do to to help those individuals? To be honest, I'm not very optimistic because, given the high levels of polarization the more that Democrats say nice things about Republicans, the more the base probably distrusts those very Republicans. But but this to me is the long-term most important question, right? Not how can the Democrats capitalize on this to push their policy agenda through, um, you know, whatever the merits of that policy agenda might be, but what can they do to build a, a successful and moderate and democracy promoting Republican Party. I mean, the analogy that I think here is of you know, what the United States did after World War II, right? It didn't try to leave the kind of anti-democratic enemy, whether Germany or Japan, in ruins. It actually spent a crazy amount of time, energy, and resources rebuilding those enemies into democratic allies. And so the question I think is, is there some version of this strategy that at least in the long term, the Democrats can do? I don't know what it is, but I have to hope that something like that is out there. Yeah, I take your point, although I don't I don't know if the comparison of rebuilding a conquered nation versus rebuilding a political party um, that's currently opposing you quite tracks. I mean, I think that the the trap of collaboration here in the way you point out is real and maybe even worse than we've so far sketched it out insofar as, you know, I've been doing a little work recently trying to figure out where all of those great post-Trump reforms that we were all so excited about at the beginning of the Biden presidency went, you know, so what about reforming White House DOJ contacts? What about uh, making sure that Congress can enforce its subpoenas? All kinds of things sort of shoring up uh, institutions after the lessons we learned under Trump. And my takeaway so far is really that the issues that are the most tied to Trump have just sunk like a stone. 
like pardons, forget it. Absolutely nothing is going to happen when it comes to pardons. The things that might be moving forward are the things that you can kind of put a not just bipartisan, but boring gloss on like the Electoral Count Act. You try to explain that to somebody walking down the street, they will fall asleep. It is impossible to explain. You know, similarly, other reforms that might be moving forward are things that are not tied to high profile, sexy, you know, culture war policy issues. So that's good on the one hand. It means that, okay, maybe we can get things done, you know, while people are paying attention or fighting over something else. On the other hand, it also means that the more attention we bring (laughs) to these issues, the harder it gets for things to be done. So, for example, with the Electoral Count Act, I think Politico had an article recently about how pro-Trump Republicans are sort of lobbying against it and trying to push it as something that Trump should pay attention to and start whipping against on his behalf. And if that happens, I think it will be really hard to do. So we're in this position where I agree that, you know, building a a coalition of all democratic forces, as Ben Wittes would say, is really important to the health of democracy and and hopefully to the de-zombification of the Republican Party. And yet the more attention that is paid to that the less probable it seems. And I actually don't know how to get around that problem. Well, going from problems to what might be bad solutions for other problems, let's talk a little bit about topic number three, the Earn It Act. In the past week or two, the Senate Judiciary Committee allowed the Earn It Act, I should say the resurrected Earn It Act, the 2022 version of what a prior piece of legislation that was introduced during the last Congress, to move forward uh, as a measure intended to help combat CSAM, child sexual abuse material on the internet. To do so, though, it would poke pretty big holes in the set of Section 230, as referenced in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, that would install put big holes in those protections around CSAM, essentially putting some obligations on uh, platforms to do scrubs for CSAM that might result in liability if they fail to adequately do so. The law also takes some other measures, sets up kind of an advisory body to set set up and uh, provide kind of best standards for the industry, things like that. This proposal's got people pretty up in arms on a lot of fronts. There are people who argue that it is likely to lead platforms to pull down what is totally legitimate First Amendment material, speech material, although again, the First Amendment not directly implicated here because these are private organizations for the most part. It also you know, implicates some people saying it's going to lead to discrimination uh, or at least a lack of space for LGBTQ communities, among others, that may see content taken down because platforms are way overly ambitious uh, in how they moderate this content for CSAM. Uh, and it's become another one of these flashpoints around Section 230 reform, this topic that has come up again and again. Alan, let me turn it over to you first. I know you've done a lot on Section 230 in other contexts. Tell us a little about how this version of this act operates or expected to operate and your impression about some of these objections that people are raising. Yeah. So so just stepping back for a second, Section 230, as I'm sure many listeners will be aware, is the law that immunizes platforms for the content that their users post. And this is considered a critical law to the modern internet because it has allowed for the modern internet as we understand it, right? In some of in some ways that's very good because it incentivizes companies to 
permit a lot more speech on their platforms than they otherwise would if they were worried about liability. On the other hand, it might cause some problems because at the same time, it allows companies to uh, not moderate, to not remove harmful content uh, because they don't have to worry about uh, liability, which would be the traditional way that a publisher, let's say, um, would be incentivized to uh, moderate the stuff that it publishes. And so I think the question for thinking through any sort of changes to 230 is to identify what is the problem you are trying to solve and would this change advance that goal, right? So the problem we are trying to solve is the truly massive amount of child sex abuse material that is online, right? I think people tend to actually underestimate the sheer magnitude of the problem, right? There are millions and millions and millions of images and videos which by themselves are obviously really horrible, but um, also feed into an ecosystem that incentivizes people to create them, which is where the, the greatest harms lie. And so the question is, is adding this liability, right, or creating the risk of liability, is that going to meaningfully increase the extent to which companies try to remove CSAM from their systems, right? I think in some ways the answer is probably not that much because companies already spend a huge amount of energy on this problem. I think because the companies are run by people and those people just as human beings don't really want to be contributing to this problem. And then also there's just kind of obvious reputational costs of being a platform in which there's a bunch of CSAM, right? So even with even given liability immunity, we'd expect companies to take this problem pretty seriously. On the other hand, one can hypothesize that were the companies to also be liable, right, in addition to reputational costs, they would work even harder, right? They would work even harder on this problem. Now, what that margin would get you is I think just really unclear, but there's probably some margin. And this then gets into the question of encryption, which is kind of a related issue here. Now, an earlier version of the Earned Act would have empowered a government panel to create best practices for companies that those companies would have to abide by in order to get Section 230 immunity. Uh, and lots of people, myself included, criticized that at the time because it was pretty clearly a way for Congress to outsource the difficult decision about how much end-to-end -end encryption we want on the modern internet to this kind of executive branch group, right? When really Congress should be making this decision itself. Now, Congress in its current versions of 230 has changed that by making any um, recommendation that this advisory committee makes totally optional and also specifying that in any civil action uh, or any action brought against companies um, for their facilitation, intentional or not, of CSAM, um, the fact that those companies encrypt their uh, services cannot be an independent ground for finding that those companies have violated the law. But the fact that it can't be an independent ground doesn't mean that it can't be part of the reason, which is something that Senator Blumenthal, one of the co-sponsors, has actually admitted to, right? So this then gets to the question of, you know, is, for example, Facebook adding end-to-end -end encryption to Facebook Messenger, right? Is that increased security that that provides worth whatever decreased ability that Facebook then has to uh, scan for CSAM? Now, I think that reasonable people can really disagree on this question. I don't think the answer is obvious uh, at all. But what I do think is that 
this is one of these value judgments that Congress has to make. And what I don't like about the Earn It Act in its current incarnation is that it delegates those really difficult and frankly systemic policy choices on the one hand to courts who will be hearing a bunch of negligence suits, right, and trying to figure this out. And worst of all, to state law. Because what Section 230 would do is it would basically allow the patchwork of state laws to uh, now suddenly apply liability um, to the extent that different states want to. Now, that generally is okay, right? We have 50 states because of laboratories of democracy and federalism, et cetera, et cetera. Ordinarily, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the problem is, you know, once one state imposes liability, right, for uh, CSAM, the platform is going to essentially have to re engineer its system for the entire nation because like Facebook can't have 50 different Facebooks in 50 different states. That's not how it works. So you're going to get a race to the most restrictive regime. Now, again, is that necessarily bad? Well, it depends what you think of the most restrictive regime, but that's a decision that Congress should be making as the national body, not the states. So listeners have not been able to see me nodding vigorously throughout everything that Alan was saying there. I mean, to, to go back, Alan, to your opening point, it is super not clear to me what problem Earn It is trying to solve and why 230 needs to be yoked into that problem. For all of the reasons you say, I mean, if even if we just talk about Facebook, right? So Facebook has an incredibly involved reporting mechanism for detecting and reporting CSAM to the authorities. Yes, there there are questions around end-to-end encryption, but the platform has put a, a just a huge amount of work into this. Whatever else bad you may say about them, and I've said a lot of bad things about Facebook, and they're actually weirdly often pilloried for it because you see these reports about, you know, Facebook reported X exorbitantly high number of you know, images of CSAM on its platform in whatever year, as opposed to other platforms which reported less. Part of that is that they're they're really looking for it. And so I think that that dynamic plays seems to be playing out a little bit in Earn It, where platforms are saying, look, there's a lot of this stuff and it's really, really, really bad. What do we do about that? And the response in this instance by Congress is to say, well, look harder, <laughs> um, rather than providing you know additional resources to figure out what needs to be done in order to cut down on this. Um, it's also I'm puzzled by the 230 carve out here in part because so Section 230 does not uh, immunize platforms from liability under federal criminal law, and there are existing <laughs> criminal laws about knowingly possessing distri- and distributing CSAM, and I, there's also an obligation for platforms to report it if they know that it's on their service. So if the problem was that that concerns that platforms couldn't be prosecuted under these circumstances, that just isn't present. I share Ellen's concern about the sort of state law patchwork, especially because the mens rea requirements are very unclear. The uh, Center for Democratic Technology has a really good write-up about, you know, why it is that creating a number of different standards could create real problems for platforms that are trying to abide by the law. And the other point that I'll make here is that Senator Blumenthal uh, a few years ago was one of the main sponsors behind FOSTA, SESTA, which I think we've talked about before in this show, which is the 
2018 legislation that carves out Section 230 protections relating to sex trafficking defined very broadly. And the goal of FOSTA was to allow sort of greater accountability for people engaging in sex trafficking. The effect that it's had is that platforms balked at the new liability and shut down a lot of services and kicked off a lot of users that they probably didn't have to shut down or kick off. And people suffered from it because they were cut off from their livelihoods, um, you know, and sex workers who couldn't access their websites, their emails, because they were cut off from materials that helped them remain safe. And so when people say, you know, that Earnit raises questions about what the effect would be on queer people and other communities, that's not hypothetical. Like we have seen that play out with FOSTA and it has been very, very damaging. So I could go on, but honestly, my my bottom line is that I find it really discouraging and disappointing that years after FOSTA, we are right back here in the same place, sort of trying to do this all over again and apparently have learned nothing. You know, I want to put a question to you two about going back to this idea about what they're trying to enforce here. Because I actually like, in my mind, it seems clear what the actual problem they're getting at here. Although I agree, I'm not convinced it's the right way to do it. But their problem seems to be platforms that don't have these rules, right? Like we accept that like major platforms like Facebook and other stuff have voluntary practices that get at this stuff. But, you know, I think the concern is that there are other platforms that don't engage in these sorts of practices that can provide vehicles for this sort of conduct. And criminal law isn't a really great answer because criminal law requires knowledge, as you noted. If you're just setting up a mechanism by which people can connect and share conduct, then, you know, I think that they wouldn't necessarily have to have knowledge of a level that you could criminally prosecute anyone over. You know, so so that seems like clearly where they're trying to steer liability to target at to make it more expensive to operate that sort of platform. I agree the state-to-state angle isn't right about that. But, you know, that seems like a legitimate policy concern at this, on the other front, right? Like, how do you incentivize platforms to actually participate in these voluntary practices that all the major platforms do for reasons of reputational management and, and a variety of other issues, right? Even though they're not compelled to do so by the law. So what do you do about those those more nefarious platforms? Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I do think Look, there are lots of platforms, obviously not all of them put as much time and energy as Facebook does into this problem. But at the same time, if you, if you want to fight this problem, you want to fight it in the most cost effective is such an odd way of putting it. But but you want to focus on where the problem is the largest and the problem is the largest like where the people are and the people are on the giant platforms. They're giant because they're highly profitable and because they're highly profitable, they therefore have a business incentive to put a lot of resources into this problem. So we then get back into the issue of, is this adding anything on the margin to the incentive of companies to deal with this issue? Now, I, I do think it it is, and this is, I think, in response to, to, to Quinto's point, um, and I, I'm curious what Quinto thinks about this. I, I think this is in some fundamental way still about encryption because, you know, you, you know to the question of, well, what do you want Facebook to do? One answer might be, don't end-to-end encrypt Facebook Messenger because if you do that, then you have cut yourself off from a huge amount of this material that you can scan for and that you can report. Now, you know, there's interesting technological advances that might allow for scanning of encrypted data to find signatures of CSAM. I mean, if we can do that, that'd be great because that would kind of like solve all these problems in a cost-free way, but that's kind of in the future and there are some limitations there. But this question of is this are the security benefits of end-to-end encryption, are they worth the cost in terms of CSAM? This strikes me as, on the one hand, a very legitimate question, and on the other hand, one that does not have an obvious answer. 
And so I think this is what is frustrating me about this bill, not that it is not responding to a real problem, right? Um, but that it's doing so in, I think, just a way that is is not befitting <laughs> to Congress in its responsibility to make these, these value choices. Now, the other thing I want to say is I, I do think it's very important on the one hand, as Quinta pointed out, to recognize that SESTA-FOSTA is our last kind of most recent example of the unintended consequences of limiting Section 230. And it does seem that SESTA-FOSTA has just not been successful for a whole host of reasons, uh, including the one that Quinta pointed out, which is that it really did lead to uh, an enormous amount of taking down of otherwise legitimate material in ways that not only was not helpful to the problem, but because of how the sex work industry works actually made it worse. I think the concern is that we not kind of overlearn that lesson, right? I don't see an obvious comparator here, right? There, there is not a legitimate version of CSAM. Now, obviously, the questions of, you know, what sort of expression that would otherwise be valid for the LGBTQ community would, would come out is an important one. I think at this point, it is necessarily important then to get pretty concrete as to like what specific content are you talking about? How much is there? How much do you expect will 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 go down? Right? I mean, again, this is another value trade off, right? Like there is no perfect liability regime that will incentivize companies to take down only the perfect, only the specific things we want them to take down, right? So we do have to make some tough choices about how much collateral censorship we are willing to tolerate, right? Um, the answer is never zero. Um, but either way, it is important to take that into account and for Congress, not various states to make that decision. That's a fair point, Alan. I guess what I mean is that it seems pretty clear that the problem it's trying to solve is encryption, that the sponsors of the bill do not like encryption, end-to-end -end encryption, as it currently stands when they're trying to get to that. The the problem, such as it is, is that the bill is written in such a weird, backward, roundabout way that when Senator Blumenthal actually came out and said, yeah, we we want companies to potentially be liable if encryption is a factor in in the uh, civil suits that plaintiffs are bringing that everyone kind of took a deep breath and said, oh, whoa, he's actually saying it. So yeah, I mean, look, if, if you want to attack encryption, attack encryption, but this weird, ironically, backdoor way of doing it, um, that was an unintentional pun. I see what you did there. Yeah, is, is very odd and contorted and makes it difficult to discuss in a way that I find frustrating. Um, I mean, the other point, to your point about the specifics of FOSTA, Alan, that's totally fair. And you're right that a lot of the harm of FOSTA did come from the specifics of, of how sex work as a profession um, and as something that sold works and, and where people sell it and how. I think, though, it's also important to keep in mind, you know, some of what happened with FOSTA is that content that was not related to sex work was taken down because platforms were worried that it could constitute something that was related to sex trafficking because the definition was so broad. And there have been studies about how, you know, when platforms start getting worried about sexual content, a lot of the times the stuff that they take down is, you know, posts by queer people, right? So a super common example is like a trans man posting a picture of his chest post-surgery. Um, will often be taken down as pornography. Um, sort of all these different kinds of, of self-expression. So, okay, what if that trans person is under 18? Maybe that platform really doesn't want to have that kind of content on there. And just like that, you've really shrunken the ability of people who often are vulnerable and rely on the internet as a space for community and encouragement 
you know, to to communicate in that space. And so part of like I I agree that CSAM as a category is obviously not something that anyone wants on on this platform, but the problem as you say is that the definition in the law at least is not entirely clear. The problem with these kinds of laws is that platforms tend to be over-inclusive in what they take down, as we saw with FOSTA, because they don't want to risk liability. And when you sweep with a broad brush, a lot of stuff gets swept away that shouldn't be. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave the conversation there because we are about out of time uh, for this week's conversation. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think about for the week ahead. Alan, let me hand it over to you for our first one. So as a parent of a of an infant, but an infant that's growing, so like an almost toddler, my life is now one hunt for the next stimulating toy that the child will enjoy. And I found my next toy. And since I suspect there are other parents listening, or just people who like entertaining toys, I wanted to, as my object lesson, describe uh, the newest addition to the household which is a rainmaker. It's kind of like a rain stick. It's uh, transparent and has all these beads in it. And you can watch them, uh, multicolored beads, and you can watch them go down uh, and up as you rotate the rain stick. And it makes a really nice sound. I will say it, it might just be that I really like this toy. And I like it maybe even more than my child does. But it's, I, it's very soothing for everyone. So, you know, when you come home and you're pretty tired, but you want to hang out with your kid, you can just both be vaguely hypnotized by the soothing sounds of the Rainmaker. Alan is a child at heart. A child that does not appear to have any bedwetting problems because for some kids that might be a disaster scenario. But fair, we haven't gotten to that stage of, of fatherhood yet, Alan. Yeah, we're not there yet. A <laughs> couple more years. A couple more years we have to put that rain stick away for a year or two, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Quinta, what, what is your object lesson for this week? My object lesson is an update. Uh, listeners may recall uh, a week or so ago, my object lesson was a plant that I had killed, or maybe that was a B-roll. I, I told you all about my murdered plant that I killed by having a window open in the middle of the night on a very cold January evening. Good news, folks. I put cuttings from the plant that had not been killed in a jar of water, and they're growing roots. So my green thumb is back. I feel confident, revitalized. This was the boost that I needed. I'm going to keep it in the water, let it grow for a little bit, transplant it to a pot. It's going to be wonderful. I, I will I will authorize your promotion from black thumb to like brownish yellow thumb. Okay, I'll take it. In a month, give us another update and then and then you can get fully. We'll see if it actually made it to the soil. <laughs> <laughs> well, for my object lesson uh, this week, uh, I wanted to share that I recently had my first session of a book club, uh, a book club of two consisting of my wife and I, as we have decided to periodically read the same book and then talk about it in a very mature endeavor, as we have spent a lot of time together these days <laughs> between the pandemic and the baby. Uh, and we talked about a phenomenal book uh, that's been out for a few years, Circe by Madeline Miller, um, which is a retelling of some, you know, actually several kind of classic Greek myths uh, interwoven with a pretty fantastic story. I think she's a phenomenal writer. I really enjoy one of the best books I've read in a long time, really enjoyed it. But let me go down a bit of a uh, rabbit hole looking into seeing what she is up to next, because this book came out a couple of years ago. I'm just catching up on it now. And I noticed, A, first off, that evidently Cersei is being opted for a TV show for HBO Max that is in was in development before the pandemic. I haven't been able to figure out what's going on with it yet recently, but I'm hoping it's still in production. I actually think that'd be a very interesting, if done well, could be very good. Might not be very good if not done well, but very interesting, at least uh, HBO long form drama. Um, but the more 
telling story is that she just a few weeks ago on her Instagram, Madeline Miller, the author, said that her next book um, is a surprise. It's Persephone, uh, you know, the queen of the underworld, which is interesting for the classic angle. But I found this really disappointing because the book she had told people she was working on prior to this for years ago, which evidently she's put on the back burner, was a novelization of The Tempest by Shakespeare, uh, which I think would be phenomenal because it's a novelization of, I think, one of the more weird and interesting Shakespeare plays uh, that is his own effort to kind of contextualize and story build around classical myths and uh, kind of story patterns. So I wanted to endorse both Cersei and the forthcoming TV series and this Persephone book. I'm sure it's going to be excellent. I'm sure I'm going to read it. Um, but I'm going to put a plea out to uh, Madeline Miller to pick back up The Tempest and don't let it lie and hopefully get it across finish line. That is a book I have been looking forward to reading for uh, since I heard about it and I'm hoping is still going to make its way onto my bookshelf one of these days sooner or later. I would just like to observe that Scott and I are both parents of young children who are like roughly the same-ish age. And Scott's object lesson was this book about classical literature, and my object lesson was a baby rattle. I don't know what that says about the differences in how we are coping with parenthood, but I think it probably says something. Well, I've done cocktails for three out of four of these things, so I think that tells you how I've been coping with parenthood. But, but touche, you can't you can't do it every week, or else people call uh, you know your doctor and worry about you. So in this case, I decided to go with a book, not just cocktails. They were morning cocktails, which I think counts as like a triple cocktail. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Sometimes I read a book. All right, it's fine. It still happens. Dominic, what are you sharing with us this week? So. If I had an object lesson for this week, it would be that for Valentine's Day, my girlfriend sent me a basketball and I haven't been playing basketball for a while because of COVID and other issues like that and just being preoccupied with work. And it was just kind of a really nice reminder of how much fun I can have if I just go and shoot hoops on my own or find some people to play pickup with and get some time to actually go out and experience life after having spent so much time in quarantine. So that was a really good uh, thing for me. And and that you have such a thoughtful girlfriend. So well done. Yes, well yes done. very much so. Very lucky in that sense. Well done, Chief. I'm not sure I've touched a basketball in the last decade, which is a pretty shocking thing to realize. I used to play <laughs> basketball all the time. Never very good at it, but I did play. But I'm not sure I've touched one in that long. It's just crazy because you don't have a hoop around. You have the you advantage have of height. Yeah, you're it's a tall dude. No, you would think I'm good at it. I am decidedly not. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a. I'm not a. Uh, I got a good arm. I'm a throwing sport kind of guy. Baseball, football, I can do those. Basketball, not so much. Not don't so don't much. you throw basket basketballs into baskets? Isn't that how you get the basketball into the basket? Not quite the same. It's more. I think of a it's a little different. Sort of yeah, <laughs> yeah. I need a little overhand sort of action. But. Sports ball. Back to the sports ball guys. <laughs> All right. Well, sadly, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed feed for this podcast, Sans Ads. 
Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever and wherever you download this podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Go Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Dominic Bustios, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we'll talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 